Welcome, Welcome to, to Power, Power of X-Men, 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 the greatest, the greatest comic book podcast in all of the multiverse. During the whole making of X-Men and the casting of X-Men, I was there in the production office. Remember, you don't need to scream for help when Banshees are around. Was it supposed to be Jean or was it supposed to be Madeline? I drew that image and a deliberate hint. Things to come. What makes Marvel Legends so special? Just the partnership with Marvel, you know, continuing to work with Jesse Falcon. This is your special guest host, Mr. Sinister. <laughs> you, know, you would never put Storm in a ponytail. That would be well, weird. You could, but that would be weird. Answer. But giving it to Jean kind of made her the girl next door that everybody could talk to. When I met Stan, he was very gracious and, and, and very kind. This is the Power of X-Men podcast. I am your host, Dayspring. Hope you survive the experience. Oh my god, guys. I cannot believe it. I have Chad, the man himself, on the podcast. He just launched Great Malcolm Lane, the podcast, which I have been binging on these last few weeks. I am so obsessed with him. Chad. Hi, Day Spring. How are you? <laughs> it's so weird. This is the first time we've actually met him. Yeah, yeah, we've chatted a bit, but it's really nice to connect in person. Your uh, enthusiasm is infectious. Oh my God. I feel like when we first started talking, I was down in Miami for a gig and I was at the Mr. C, completely being drunk, trying to live my best Christian Frost life drinking like an obscene amount of vuv and then we were talking and i forgot what we were saying and then um my husband came to the pool area and was like oh my god i'm so sorry your deal died and then i had to go rush home and i know we kind of like fell off talking for a little bit so i always i always regret that i never got a chance to really you know run wild with our conversation yeah no i'm always i'm always happy to connect and yeah life takes uh, life takes over pretty regularly for all of us i think so uh yeah i'm glad we're here today so you started a podcast. You you told me before you were starting the podcast that you were thinking of starting the podcast. What? Yeah, yeah. What? I, I've, I've listened to yours quite a bit. And uh, so yeah, I reached out to kind of connect regarding that because it was kind of a whole new niche for me. What made you want to start a podcast? I have a tremendous amount of creative energy and I am a much happier person when I am channeling it somewhere. Uh, and during that 18 months of COVID crazy, uh, all of that creative energy just got locked up tight. So I needed a post-COVID world project to work on and uh, came up with the idea for the podcast and went with it. And it's been so much fun. Well, I remember that trip when I was down in Florida. I You had just posted your trailer and I was like, okay, I'll listen to this. And your voice in that first trailer, you sounded so good. And like your background music and everything and you were just explaining the podcast. It was, was it like a five minute trailer? I don't remember how long it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like six or seven minutes, I think. But my, it was uh, so good. My partner does uh, sound editing and music. So he, he did all of that. Uh, and so I'm blessed to have that here in my home. So he's able to do that. But yeah, I, I think I have a good radio voice. What, what's the old, uh, the old joke. I have a face for radio. <laughs> I say that to so many people. I try to, I try to say, I try to put a spin on it and be like, you have a voice for radio. <laughs> Yeah, but, but your I, voice I, is great. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yours as well. I I, I really enjoy listening to to the work you're doing. Uh, you have so much uh, enthusiasm and charisma uh, in 
every interview that you do, it's really impressive. It's really infectious as you, as you, uh, well, as a listener uh, tuning in, it makes oh. me excited to like learn new things. That's, that's beyond kind because, you know, I think much like you with the pandemic, there so much just happened, life happened. And I thought I was going to go nuts. And so I needed to lean into something and comics and X-Men was something that I always sort of denied because I like kind of moved here to New York city. I didn't have much space. And then, you know, I just started doing things and I, I always like kept all my comic book stuff like tucked away. But then when the pandemic again happened, I just, I needed to lean into things that made me happy. Yeah, I, it was almost the opposite for me. I'm always really good at channeling my creative energy, but during the pandemic, I got like three times busier than normal. A lot of people had time on their hands, but I went insane. I started working from home. Uh, I work as a therapist and therapists were in very high demand through the, uh, <laughs> through the pandemic. So I was working double hours and I have two kids who were being homeschooled. So it went to, it went oh, to like, survived. I'm sorry for cut you off. Stretched thin. Uh, it was a long, it was a long 18 months. Uh, but you know, we all came out stronger. We're good. So um, your, your professional life is the busiest it's ever been. You have two kids who need to be homeschooled. So you were like, why don't I just start a podcast as well? Well, I started the podcast after the work hours diminished and after the kids went back to school. Uh, so it, I did it when I had more free time, knowing I needed that, that outlet again. And I'm having fun, which is a, a really good sign. If you're having a good time along the way, I think that's the, that's the key to uh, whether you should continue something or not. So when did you first start loving comic books? When did Chad the Kid come to comic books? When I was in sixth grade, my home life was pretty shitty. And uh, we lived in a small town and I would go down to the grocery store and pluck out a couple of bucks for some comics off of the rack uh, at the, like, the grocery store spinner rack. So uh, I was like 12, which is 30 years ago. I'm 42 now. And I started reading uh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Mutanimals comics from like the Archie uh, line. And a few months later, those were canceled. And uh, I was kind of devastated because it like could be, it become like a huge escape for me when I was a kid. Um, so I started like carefully thinking, all right, I want a new book to buy or a new series to dedicate myself to. So I, I, after thinking about it for a long time, I picked up X-Force number 27. Uh, they, they're fighting Rainfire and the Mutant Liberation Force. And uh, 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 they, some of the characters turn good and some turn evil. And I was fascinated by this new world. So I started buying more books and then back issues. And then I got a job at a comic book store and I would spend all of my money on comics. So it turned into like big stacks of thousands of books. Uh, so I've been reading for a long time now. Uh, I've probably read every book Marvel's put out at least once. Um, and I've been a huge nerd for, for decades at this point. What was the name of that comic book store you worked at? Uh, it, it was in Idaho Falls, Idaho. It was called Captain Comics. I do not believe it exists any longer, but I haven't been there in a long time, so I couldn't say. What was one of the things that surprised you working at a comic book store from going from being a fan to working as a retailer? Uh, so we're talking back in the mid nineties when I was there. Um, and I was like still a high school student. So I was there a couple of years. Uh, I think I was surprised by the obsession with other things outside of comics. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, like early internet era, people couldn't get, you know, pirated stuff as easily. 
uh, so people were obsessed with pogs and oh, magic the gathering nice. and like the star trek trading card game like so you'd, you'd see people with like huge passions about all these other things uh i think probably the thing that surprised me most is you'd see people come in and they'd try to take uh like an original comic that was worth like 75 dollars, and they'd like peel the price tag off and then put like a one dollar sticker on it and like try to buy it for a dollar and we'd catch them every time but i was i think i was surprised at how often that happened back then mm. Mm. I didn't even think that I, 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 there were no comic books stores in Miami. I don't want to say like that. I always say that, but there were comic book stores. They just weren't very local to where I was at. So I, I, I missed out on that kind of culture where people did shady things like that. I love me a good comic book store. This one was really tiny, uh, but I know even now there's like lots of gaming culture in comic shops. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's a great place. So what was your first memory of the x-men you started off with the turtles you know but when did you come to x-men so my first comic was an x-force uh uh and then like trying to learn the history of these characters that had been around for decades um i remember picking up the books it was the x-men blue and gold era oh yeah Uh, excalibur was running x-factor was running and like it felt really overwhelming to try to figure out which characters belonged where but i kind of started obsessing over it um I remember making like lists in high school of like all of the characters and then like casting all of my friends in different roles based on personality traits. Like I got super nerdy with it right away. Uh, so I, yeah, I've been, I've been an X-Men fan for a really long time. Um, favorite characters constantly shifting based on what I'm reading at the time. I, I think if I had to choose an all time favorite uh, going back even to my childhood is probably Cannonball. Oh, I love Cannonball. I had a huge crush on him all through high school. Oh, with the writer's strong hair. Yes. Oh, with his blue, you know, costume. And when he fights Gladiator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that era of him. My my screen name, I was on AOL keyword Marvel. And, you know, I would go on the Toy Biz message boards there. And my, my screen name was Cannon B. 104. Not only after my printer, but also because of Cannonball. I, I remember going into my high school uh, and like looking up characters that I wanted to learn more about, like Moonstar or Warlock. And I would like go to whatever Wikipedia was back then. I don't even remember. And like print out their whole character history so that I could read it later. And when the teacher caught me, they got really mad because I was like printing hundreds of pages but on the comic book. There characters. was no Wikipedia. It was probably like a ring group that you went to. Like- yeah, I'm sure it was some fan site. I used to, the way I used to have to do it, we didn't even have a printer in my house until later on, but I would have to go on AOL, you know, do the dial-up, hit file fax, and then fax the character bios to my parents' office, let it print out on that fax paper, and then they bring it back to me the next day, you know? Yeah, and I mean, comic fandom has changed nowadays because everybody has access to everything at their fingertips, so they can look at the whole history across the board. I had this. This is what I had. I remember like, that book. Yeah. Like, this is the only, like, this is probably the first time when this published in like 2004 that I actually read a very detailed biography on Rachel Summers or Magma or other characters like that. Because, like, back in the day, I mean, like you were saying, you just went to a comic book store and you hoped you found your issue or you were in the middle of an issue or they were sold out of a crossover issue. And so you kind of had to like piece everything together. And then, you know, and then I started getting into the other stuff. Kurt Busiek's Avengers number one back in 97 and Mark Wade's run on Captain America. And uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Joe Kelly's run on Deadpool. 
like all those mm-hmm. stuff from the late nineties that I just, I loved and the universe got so big, you know, it's, know. Uh, it's, it's a really interactive space. Do you have a particularly favorite era? Uh, you know, I think I tend to always answer from where I'm at now. My favorite run in recent years has been, uh, well, up until my favorite book right now is Hellions. But uh, prior to that, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl has been my favorite thing in the last decade <laughs> of books. Uh, I've, I've always not read it. Oh, it's so great. Oh, okay. Well, I think we're going to have to do a special mini-sode where we talk about it because I would love to. I adore it. I, it each issue is like really dense and I laugh out loud like 20 times. It's uh, Ryan North did an amazing job with that series. It was so fun. It's such a fun, fun character. And I know she gets a lot of a lot of bad rap on the message boards, but you know, she's fun. I wanted to buy that Marvel legends of her, the love writer legends. Do you have it by any chance? I have a squirrel girl statue upstairs in my room. I'm not mm. sure if it's the same one you're talking about. Um, yeah. I'll send you a photo of it later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to see it. Okay. So you are, you've always been a reader. So you've never, you never jumped off a lot of people seem to have jumped off after Operation Zero Tolerance, but then kind of came back during Morrison's era. Did you ever jump off the books ever? No, I've con- I mean, there's been times I've enjoyed them more than others, mm-hmm. uh, but I've consistently read basically everything Marvel puts out since I was a teenager. Um, for a while, when I was in college, I was writing some fan fiction online, you know, as we do when we are young and have time on our hands. Stop and, it. Uh, I love that you were a fan <laughs> fiction writer. Uh, and I ended up getting connected with uh, a team of other kind of fanfic writers and historians. And for a while there, I even worked on the Marvel handbooks line. So I was one of the writers and researchers in the official, uh, the official Marvel handbooks. Oh, no. Uh, which, which was a ton of work for very little payoff, except for the like seeing my name in a comic book. Uh, and I'd get checks in the mail with Spider-Man on them, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> Did you keep any of them? Uh, I think I have a couple in a file. <laughs> in the X-Men 2008 Messiah Complex Handbook. Yeah. Uh, they, they have a profile of me in the back. Uh, oh, really? So there's, like, there's like a picture of me with like a little bio. And this is before I came out of the closet. So I sound like super... Uh, super closeted (laughs) back then, but it's still kind of a cool claim to fame. No, that's incredible. I'm looking, I'm not ignoring you. I'm pulling out my, my side complex. Well, you have it like right there. I love that. Let me see if I, if I see that, because I know what you're talking about. I saw that it's not. It's it's in the final page of the, uh, of the handbook portion. So like the encyclopedia entries on the characters, but I'm not sure if it made it into the trade or not. Yeah. I don't think, I know which one you're talking about because I had it. Um, I'm going to go through all of my back issues just to find- yeah. thank you for giving me what to do tonight. I'm going to ignore I'm my husband online too. I can send you a <laughs> I'm going to ignore my Pomeranian because I'm going to be looking for, <laughs> for you have a Pomeranian too, by the way, I have a Palm ski. Yeah. He's oh, a, he's a Pomeranian Husky and he's ridiculous. He was just in here licking my face before we started. Oh, I know. Apollo is bouncing always everywhere. You'll probably hear him scratching on the door to our study because he gets loose. Um, Okay, so that's actually really, really cool. Like, so does Marvel outsource those guidebooks then? Or they're not handled in-house? Uh, or are you just no. hired as a freelancer? 
it's kind of a freelancer work. So the the editor, at least then, I'm not I'm not super in the know on what's happening now editorially. Mm-hmm. But the editor then was Jeff Youngquist, who kind of ran that side of mm-hmm. the Marvel stuff, and he hired uh, an editor named Jeff Christensen. Mm-hmm. who's a veterinarian in Florida. He runs a really incredible website called the Appendix of the Marvel Universe. Uh, oh, I've come across it before. Yeah, and they, they do obscure characters. I do write-ups for them all the time just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, my work with Jeff and the rest of the team, uh, we'd report into Jeff Christensen, who would then report into Jeff Youngquist, and then the books would come out from there. But I got to do a couple of cool things too. Like uh, when Marvel launched their postage stamps campaign, they had a uh, like a press release as if it was written by Willie Lumpkin, the Fantastic Four's oh, mailman, yeah. and I got to write Stanley in the movie. Yeah, I got to write up all of the uh, all of the uh, Willie Lumpkin's words for the public. Or uh, they did a they did a series that was like Captain America's diary during Dark Reign, and I wrote a lot of that. So I, I got to do some really fun little. Oh writing. wow! So you have real like writing credits there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's awesome. like very low on the totem pole, but yeah, it was really fun. No, that's not low on the totem pole at all. That's awesome. <laughs> you wrote Captain America's diary. What did Dude, you say? Well, did you mention Stucky? Did Stucky get a mention in there? <laughs> I don't believe so. It was, very, it was very character specific. So I'd have to be like, what would Captain America's thoughts on Ulysses Clobby or on Cyclops or on Emma Frost? And I'd have to like, delve into his history and write up these things. It was, it was fun. Spoilers uh, for what he thinks about Emma. Oh my God! I remind <laughs> Rogers of his mother. That was a brilliant scene. Who was his mother? Who <laughs> was Captain America's mother? I want an answer to this. So good. His mother was Sarah Rogers. Uh, she was a lovely person, although she had an abusive alcoholic husband. Okay, but the fact that you knew that off the top of your head, <laughs> and now I am nerdy, nerdy Marvel trivia constantly. Sarah Rogers, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, does she look like Emma Frost? She does, yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah. She's much more conservative. Rick Remender did a run on Captain America a few years back where Cap gets trapped in Dimension Z. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it right were, now. And there were tons of flashbacks to Cap's childhood in the 1920s. Uh, <sighs> and it, was, it was really great. So his mom was featured pretty prominently in that. That deep cut there. Wow. Yeah, she does kind of look like Emma Frost. Thank you for solving this mystery You're for welcome. me. <laughs> And I'm always and I'm always about my queer history as well. Captain America had a childhood friend named Arnie Roth who was gay. Yep, yep. and he died, right? Wasn't he, he died? He was in the comics uh, back in Grenwald's run, and mm-hmm. I think he died in like Cap three hundred. I'd have to go back. It's been a minute since I've looked into that. So when you're writing for Marvel, when you're doing the guidebooks, when you're doing Captain America's diary, I mean, how do you feel like playing with these? characters who have been like toys for all of us but you you get to officially on some level direct their story or you know uh, what's what i'm looking for here curate you know what's going on with them you know some of the back history with them how does that how, how did that make you feel back then it was a challenge in ways so uh the assignment generally was they would have characters assigned to a specific handbook Uh, I wasn't involved in the selection of those characters, but they would have, you know, a half page for certain characters, a full page for others, two or three or four pages for others. And then it was the job of the handbook writer to go read their entire history Uh and write the summary. Uh, So some of the challenges were like when there's a character that's dead in one issue, but a few Uh years later, they're back in another. We'd have to like try to tie that in. 
but but just the comprehensiveness of it like uh if you read I don't know, you take a character like The Blob, who doesn't seem that overwhelming, but he's appeared nearly 300 times. Uh, and so when you go back and you're digging into issues from Spider-Man and the Avengers and all these places where he's appeared and you're trying to tie it all up and summarize with a word count, that became more of the challenge, um, trying to be really comprehensive. Uh, I, re I remember writing the entry for Ulysses Claw. I brought him up twice today. Uh, okay, and someone's a stan. <laughs> I don't really like the character that looks like this. But he's in my brain today for some reason. But he uh, he has a really complex power set. So like trying to summarize that in a small entry. Yes. We'll go ahead there. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. I mean, this is gorgeous. I mean, is one of your pages probably in here? I don't know. These, what... are, the, these are the 80s books. Yeah. Uh, I, I worked on the two, late 2000 books. Got it. Got it. Um, the whole box of them in the other room. <laughs> I love that. So I do remember a lot of people quoting the handbooks on like Tom Bravote's form spring being like, well, how can this be that? Because, you know, you said this in the official Marvel handbook and people, you know, he would just be like, oh, you know, like, you know, it's, it's writers who are piecing together history there for other, other readers. Did you like, like, how do they know you're the real deal with those characters? Like, do you have, I used to work at Marvel. And so where my question is trying to go is I was in their custom publishing division back in 2006. So when we were done with something, it went to the copy editors and they sort of fact-checked everything. Were in the case of like the Marvel handbook, did you guys get fact-checkers or were, that's it, what you put in there, no one questioned? No, no, we were questioned. So we had, uh, you know, 15 to 20 writers, all of us working on our individual entries. And then we would read through each other's things and then it would have to pass through the editing team at Marvel at the same time. So it was, it was closely scrutinized. There was no getting errant facts in there. You'd have to be real creative and sneaky to make that happen. Uh, yeah, no, there's definitely fact checkers in place. What's one random obscure Marvel fact that not many people know I, uh, I have a billion. Uh, my favorite thing in, in any comics is just random characters who are brought back. So like the current run of Iron Man has all of these obscure villains and characters and one-offs in it right now. And it's really fun. Uh, so I love it anytime they bring in like a deep dive into continuity. Um, one random Marvel fact that shows up in my brain Uh it's hard to latch onto what it almost be easier if you gave me a character. To, to okay. Well, you know who I'm going to ask then. Jean Grey. Jean Grey has so much uh, uh, randomness. Uh, I think something not a lot of people know. She has a sister. Oh, Sarah, of course. Who has two children that are of also course. mutants who are yep. dead. Yeah, uh, they died during the Shi'ar. Uh, slaying of the great the family. Shi'ar death commandos, which oh. is the worst name for a team. Uh, so I'm waiting for them to come back. I think I know. forget about Joey and Galen. No, resurrect them. And Sarah, give Sarah, I, she died with the failings. Give, give sis, you know, I know she's a human, but like, come on, give sis a good nudge. Although maybe she doesn't have a protocol with the, um, with, with Cerebro. But okay, how about this? I've spoken to so many people about my disdain for Beast. And I was always like, listen, I, I can stop if someone just answers one question for me about Beast. And I've asked Jordan D. White. I've asked retailers. I've asked Zeb Wells. I've asked everyone this. Where did he get his PhD from? Mm, I don't know. See, 
You are the encyclopedia of the Marvel Universe. You literally wrote the book, and you don't even know where Beats got his PhD. That doesn't mean it's not available. <laughs> it just means it's not in my brain. <laughs> uh, I've looked. I've looked. I've looked everywhere. I mean, I know where he did his undergrad. He grew up in Illinois. And then he just showed up one day randomly at the Avengers and was like, oh, hey, like, I'm a geneticist. Like, you can call me Dr. Hank McCoy. And it's like, um, where did you get that from? In the, in the podcast I'm doing now, which uh, I'll, I'll talk more about it in a second. But one of the things I'm commenting most frequently on is it's so nice to have fun beast back. Yeah, he's been so like morally awful in the comics for so long now. It's really fun to go back and read '60s Beast before he got so awful. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know those questions were going to come about what you've learned about the X Men reading them from the early '60s. But talk about your podcast uh, yeah, in, so- in great detail. Tell me about your co-host. I mean, I've I've listened to it, so I know. But for the folks who are joining us today, who tell us about your your approach, what you're doing. Yeah, so there's a number of uh, there's a number of X Men podcasts out there that are amazing. Among them, the one on your shirt, the X Y podcast, which oh, also we love, does. Justin and Alicia. Uh, there's so many there's so many great podcasts out there. But I was kind of surveying what I was listening to and um, realizing for a lot of these folks, they'll even talk in their podcasts about we've never read the old original run. Nobody goes back and reads the '60s comics, and so I got this idea of doing like a week by week review of the 60s original comics, but from a queer perspective. So we're calling the, co- the podcast Dream Alkin Lane, which is obviously the street the X-Men live on. And there's a big parallel between um, mutants and the queer community, uh, largely because you can't choose to be a mutant, just like you can't choose to be gay or trans or bi. And so this idea of just being born with something and then kind of rejected by society, there's a long history of queer people having to leave their homes and families behind to find their own families, their own safe space. Uh, so there's a lot of correlation there. So we called the podcast Gray Malkin Lane. It's the home the X-Men created away from the places they were rejected, just like queer people do the same. Uh, and we're doing week by week reviews of the original 60s books. So starting with number one and moving down the line. Uh, it's about an hour each week, and we're just laughing our asses off about saucy, ridiculous, awful things. Uh, we're doing some uh, kind of character analysis. So, for example, we know Iceman is gay now, and we can go back and apply that to the framework of what we're reading in the 60s um, when Stanley and Jack Kirby did not intend him to be gay at the time. You know, uh, there's a lot of sexism, and there's a lot of bizarre mad science and weird plot twists, and uh, uh, it's just really fun. So we have lots of queer theory, lots of nerd, deep continuity dives, and we get to analyze these characters and where they come from, from a number of different kind of modern perspectives. Um, and we work really hard on the podcast. We do have straight allies who join us sometimes, but uh, having you know people of color and women and, and people from all different perspectives so that we can kind of get those fresh voices each week. My co-host is named Heather. She is a pansexual uh, young woman in her early 20s. Uh, we are storytelling buddies from uh, a group here locally. Uh, and we've had a really fun time um, just kind of going into this each week. Every podcast we record, we leave with a giant smile. So it's always a, a good sign that we're having fun. And I'm hoping that's transcending into the recordings. Oh, it is. I mean, the last episode I listened, you guys were doing Kazar, and it was 
it was such a riot and you guys started talking about like the dinosaurs tv show as well and not the mama and i i forgot what question you posed to um your guests on there but you said something to the effect of you know pick your favorite dinosaur and stuff like that and uh, is it pronounced kazar i forgot you corrected the way it said is it kazar 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 yeah i i always say it on the cover on the cover of x-men 10 it says his name and then right underneath it says here's how to pronounce it (laughs) (laughs) i'm like oh here we go no, I <laughs> it's very easy there um do you, you know jordan d white i on twitter he's i don't think he's on twitter anymore but he was going back and tweeting about reading x-men comics since you know issue one mm-hmm. so um what's one thing you think you've learned about the x-men other than beast is fun <laughs> like okay sure um there's there's so many bizarre plot twists that just make no sense in the context of even so one of the things i really try hard to do is read it from a 1960s perspective mm-hmm. like this was marketed for white boys buying comics and gas stations right like that, mm-hmm. that's basically their target market but then we'll analyze it from a 2021 perspective um at the end of x-men number nine uh, professor x has left the team for months he's hunting down his arch nemesis lucifer mm-hmm. you know you know nothing about lucifer you don't learn it until x-men 20 who he even is but at the end of x-men 9 he almost destroys the planet and then at the end professor x says okay we're gonna let him go now and they're all like okay you're like wait what like you've been hunting him for months and months you just stopped him from destroying the world and now you're like okay bye see you later bye uh, there's so many bizarre little little twists that way. Um, probably the thing that stands out the most rereading from now, because I haven't read these comics in years, Jean Grey is so underutilized in the early books. Uh, she lacks personality. She's either jealous or like uh, pining for Scott in her thought bubbles uh, with so little to do. <laughs> um, and Professor X is a oh. huge jerk. Oh, what I'm thinking about with Professor X is the scene that obviously gets called back during Onslaught where he's here like, oh, like, I can't help worry about the one I love, you know, in reference to Gene. And his student, his teenage student. Student, like, what? Like, that, fuck off, man. Like, Jesus, that's insane. And I don't think that that's never been revisited since onslaught i think that's it gene saw it and it no, never i think got you have to again. forgive him to a certain point it's just a, an errant thought but still it says some things about his character um we uh i, I believe it's x-men 5 if i'm getting my numbers right the uh professor x at the end of x-men 4 in order to stop the brotherhood of evil mutants who've taken over a country uh he throws himself on a device that like stops a nuclear bomb from going off and he narrowly saves the X-Men, but he loses his powers at the end of the issue. And you're like, oh no. So in X-Men 5, the whole issue, he's an invalid. Jean Grey's carrying him around telekinetically. They're spoon feeding him. Angel's like flying in the air to grab his jacket for him. And he's like, oh, I'm so hurt. They go off and they fight Magneto on asteroid M in space and they almost die. And when they return home, Professor X is like, by the way, just kidding. I was never sick. I never lost my powers. This was a big test. You passed. And he's like, oh my God, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really jarring when you go back and read these books. 
That's that's insane. I've wanted to do. I've wanted to go re, uh, go read since issue one, and I have the Marvel Unlimited app, and I started reading it. But I don't know. I it's. I feel like your podcast does a great job at curating that, and it's madness. One of the things I remember reading, and maybe you can frame it for me, was that originally they really did not want that the, those parallels with otherness that they were supposed to more be seen as science experiments. And I'm just curious if you see that at all. You know, they use, um, they use the word mutant right away. And Mm -hmm. the mutants in the early books are constantly referring to themselves as homo superior. This is why we are better than humans. We are homo superior. I'm not exactly sure when the ethos of like, we were born this way comes into it. I think it's pretty inherent from the beginning. In fact, I think at the beginning, Stanley tried to tie a few characters into like their parents were exposed to nuclear radiation or something. And that's why they were born with powers like Professor X. Children of the Atom. Professor X's dad died while working on the first atom bomb, you know, like that that type of thing. Um, But uh, yeah, I I think it's right from the beginning. It's very clear that they are the other. Uh, I think it's X-Men. Five, I think it's the same issue. Uh, it's kind of your first big example of anti-mutant prejudice. Uh, Magneto, sends, Magneto sends Toad down to earth in a disguise and he's hopping around profet- pretending to be a professional athlete in order to lure the X-Men in because they're going to think he's a new mutant. Uh, when they get there, he rips off his mask and he's like, haha, it's me, Toad. And the whole crowd of people like storms in like, kill the beast, like from Beauty and the Beast, right? Like they come in <laughs> with the intent of harming. Uh, so you see this like example of prejudice pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And then the Sentinels are created as early as, I think it's X-Men 15, 14 or 15, mm-hmm. where you see the government creating machines to contain mutants. So, I mean, no matter what their intent was, they they latched onto that like other theory pretty quickly early on. Yeah. And do you do you see why the book eventually got canceled for a couple years is it do you think it's weak among sort of the other books like fantastic four and avengers that were being published around that time like does it just not hold is it just like not as good as those other ones uh i don't know that i have an answer i kind of enjoy it all the way through i think it struggles i think it struggles a little bit to reinvent itself um roy thomas takes over the book pretty early and he he kind of takes the characters in new direct directions, but you know, they, they end up going to college. I mean, so they do go through changes. Havoc and Polaris come into the book. Uh, the art gets a little Popo. <laughs> Popo in the house. Does she have <laughs> a latte? Art, from the, art gets a lot, the art gets a lot better. You get a lot of uh, a new stories. I can't exactly say why it was canceled actually. Um, I think it was pretty good back then still. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We get into the early seventies. I almost enjoy it more than those original sixties books. Although, uh, although those got, I could go do reviews of Thor or the Avengers or anything in the sixties as well. And it's just, <laughs> it's ridiculous. The Avengers fight, the Avengers fight Baron Zemo once and his, his goal is to drop glue all over New York city and glue down people to the pavement. Yes, like, I love that. I mean, there's some amazing shit back then. It's incredible. <laughs> 
Well, one of the big things that happened with the X-Men, you know, those that era of X-Men was all new X-Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they were called Yesterday's X-Men when they saw it on, when we saw it on the timeline that the Avengers had and we saw that Yesterday's X-Men were going to come. Yeah. And that is what we're here also to discuss today. Brian Michael Bendis's first six issues of all new X-Men. And I'm curious, you and your podcast, you guys went there with the time displaced X-Men where they, where they came to the present. Yeah. So, uh, so first to comment, it, I mean, retroactive continuity, retcon, what that is, it's modern writers going back and either altering or inserting pieces of history that we didn't know about. Uh, so we've had a number of that with the X-Men exploring their early adventures, everything from X-Men first class to X-Men first hidden class. years and the hidden years by John Byrne is so fun. Uh, and it's it's supposed to like fill in the blanks on a lot of these stories. Um, Bendis's work in all new X-Men was was really astounding. And I remember enjoying it the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. But since I've been doing the podcast, I reread that whole like five years of comic books. Uh, and, and it's really solidly good until it isn't. It goes on way too long. Um, yeah, I remember that being, I, I wish Battle of the Atom probably, and I think Battle of the Atom actually happened pretty early on, but after they started splintering the teams, I was like, ah, anyways, I'm sorry, I cut you off. When they go into space, yeah, there's there's points, all, all of the Venom stuff and- uh, uh, Oh. It, it, gets, it gets uncomfortable. And Angel's wings and stuff like that, yeah. Well, which is a cool concept until they resolve it. We'll talk about that in a minute. So, uh, so when you're going back <laughs> okay, and reading the original, you're reading the original books, in X-Men 8, there's a scene where Iceman and Beast are out in the public there's a young boy who's gotten stuck up on a roof and he may fall. I think his name's Jimmy. Uh, Beast goes scrambling up the wall to find him and, and save this little boy. But when he gets back on earth, the humans are angry. Like, look at this man. He saved this kid, but he's a mutant. We should attack him. And, and Beast is a teenager and he's rightfully quite upset about this. And he goes back to the team and he quits. He says, I'm, I'm done. And that's the moment when I think it's in 2012, Brian Michael Bendis chooses to bring the team forward to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters are all in a really kind of strange space. Uh, Cyclops has just been made the leader of the team. They're all kind of new characters or blank slates still. But Bendis had to draw on these like decades worth of history, everything we know about these characters at this point, and then bring them into this really complicated modern X-Men world that's so fractured and nuanced and there's so much going on. And frankly, it's a brilliant storytelling concept. I agree. I agree. How do these teenagers react to their modern selves uh, frozen at this moment in time and now brought forward. And it's so good that original run. I, so, you know, it came after AVX, right? The Avengers versus the X-Men Cyclops is in prison. So it's Emma, and, you know, Beast goes back in time and wanting to bring those X-Men to the to the present to show to show them what Cyclops done has done. And, and like the mutant genocide, which we know he was lying. I I loved it at the time. I thought there was something really powerful about being so young, being so optimistic and then coming to you know the present and seeing that everything you've worked hard for is going to end in your death in Jean's case, you know, her death. And 
I thought it made for really good storytelling. I feel like they editorially didn't know what to do with that concept. And we knew they couldn't go back in time. Does that ever get answered? That they couldn't go back in time, but then during extermination, they're able to go back in time without any qualm. Was it ever resolved why they couldn't go back? And then, and then they also try to say that they came from an alternate past, but then I know that was later retcon out. So there's a, there's a few times they try to go back into the past. There's one point when they physically can't, mm-hmm. they find themselves unable and they feel like they've altered themselves enough or just the timing is wrong or, mm-hmm. you know, something. Uh, so they determine to figure it out later. Um, there's a time in the future where they're researching it a lot and they're finding they can't go back. At one point they do travel back, but they see a different original team uh, and they assume like, oh, geez, it's like we've changed the whole past. Now we're stuck in the present. Yeah. They later retcon that to say that that original team that is in the past is the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants from the future. Do you remember that team? Yeah. With oh, I do. Hayes and Molly Hayes and old Deadpool. And, and they have gone, they've gone back to the 60s and they're posing as the original X-Men and thus create a different alternate timeline. Uh, so when the X-Men fix all of that, then they have a bunch of crazy shit happen. And then they... <laughs> Then they go back to the past because of Manon and Maxime and Teenage Cable and all of that stuff that happened in Extermination. Well, I remember just being really happy with the book because that was the first time we really did get Gene back in a significant way. Because obviously there had been all of those red herrings with Hope being the Messiah, or Hope being Gene Grey reborn and Gene being the Messiah baby. And then we just got her silhouette in AVX. So we see her come back again during all new X-Men. And one of the things that I found really curious about these first six issues, even when I read it then, I feel like the vibe was that Cyclops had moved on from Gene, that Emma was sort of his love now, that their relationship worked, that at the end of new X-Men, he chose her, even though it was never explicitly stated because she died, but and so they kind of picked up that thread. And then when Cyclops sees Teen Gene, he's here like the love of my life, everything I've always wanted. And Teen Gene kind of like freaks out, and like you know, throws him off. You know, I. Which, which, by the way, we we commented on Professor X's creepy thought bubble about Gene. This is adult Cyclops lusting after like sixteen year old Gene, and that scene reads really creepy now. Yes, it's. In fact, oh. in fact there's a scene later where they're at the Weapon X bunker, the new Xavier School, and adult Cyclops goes into Teen Gene's room and he sits with yeah. her and he's talking and. Kate, when he walks out, Kate Pride is like, you are an adult and she is a teenager and you will never be alone with her again. And yeah. you're like, yes, Kitty. yes, Kitty, go Kitty. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember that. That was in Uncanny, was it? When they went into the bunker. I, you know, I, the whole way that was managed for Jean, like I feel for her character when people are like, oh, she's so angry. She's so irrational. She's reading minds without permission. One, her powers got kickstarted way before they were supposed to. Two, you literally plucked a 16-year-old girl from her time, brought her to the future, told her she was destined to die, and that all of these people were in love with her. And another line in like the first issue of All New X-Men, you know, Wolverine is like, you know, that mind stuff doesn't work on me, Genie. And then he falls asleep, you know, because it, it did. I was like, that's such a weird line. This is a teenage girl. Like, leave her alone. Like, everyone's like throwing their baggage at poor Gene. But the biggest sin was Hank McCoy 
when Jean was in his mind and she puts him in that god awful 60s dress, which I loved at the time, you know, for, for the era, I love the 60s look. But I don't, and he's here like, that is my favorite Jean Grey costume. Fuck you, Beast. Fuck you. So, Jean, uh, if we're focusing just on Jean, there's five characters. <laughs> Jean gets her whole adult life downloaded into her brain at once. And it's not just that she died. It's Mm -hmm. that she married the love of her life. But Mm -hmm. first he married her clone when she was believed dead after being taken over by an alien and destroying a planet. Then Cyclops had a baby with the clone and sent it to the future. And then Jean got all of their memories with her own. And then she has a daughter from an alternate future. And also some aliens came and wiped out your entire fucking family. So your mom and dad and sister are all dead. Your whole family is dead. And also you're a a telepath. Like (laughs) like that's going to do some traumatic shit. I actually love what Bendis did with her in this run with her kind of unethically using her powers and then coming around to being more responsible with them. Uh, her desire to like change her future. I, you want you want compelling storytelling. I think his work with Jean, she's the star character. She is. Out of the X-Men. And, well, and she got the most love there with, with like her return. Like people are like, oh my God, it's Jean. It's really Jean Grey. And, you know, I'm forgetting who, who said it, but she's you're like, oh, that's Jean Grey. Huh, you X-Men have so many lives. To the point that when adult Jean came back, it was sort of like, hey, Jean, what's up? You know what I mean? So she really is a star. And I think she grew the most um, out of all of them from a, a story perspective, obviously one of the other big stars was Bobby who, you know, had a complete, you know, personality shift when they brought him into, into the present and he felt more secure with coming to terms with his identity and everything. And do you remember that him coming out was actually leaked before the, before the the issue ran, I think someone took a photo of it off the press, and then it it sort of made its rounds on the internet. Yeah, I I actually think during Bendis's run on All New X Men, I think Teenage Iceman got the least amount of love and attention. He really? was just the jokester. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until like I mean they were in the in the present or the future for like years, right? Uh, it wasn't until like farther on when Gene revealed that Bobby is gay, that that's when they really started to take his character places. Uh, Cena Grace took over the adult Iceman book at the same time. And then Iceman, teenage, teen Iceman got a boyfriend. So he had a lot more character development toward the end. But in all, all new X-Men, I feel like he was the least focused on. We, we um, love Cena Grace here. He's been on a couple episodes of the podcast. He's such a good human being. That yeah. Iceman run, folks at home, if you haven't already, go read it. Stop what you're doing right now because it's such an amazing series. Both both volumes are so great. Yeah, I... And there's, and there's an incredible scene, a different series, but there's an incredible scene of teen Iceman sitting at the table with his parents or who are like, you're so cute, we love you, but he can't ice down because he's so nervous. Meanwhile, they're like all critical and like judgy about adult Iceman. So they're two, their son, like in two versions, is sitting at the table and it's it's delicious. I love that scene so much. Well, you know what Cena did so well? He used sci-fi elements to tackle very serious familial issues. And you think like Bobby's parents can't be all that bad if they're looking at their teen son and they want a second chance mm-hmm. at raising him right you know, and, 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 and being there for him and accepting who he is and saying that he's so cute so they can, you know, 
move past those past mistakes that they did with the adult Iceman. It's, it was very interesting the way he did that. And I, and I love what he did with the parents in that run, because I think that humanized the parents quite a bit and seen as just such a brilliant writer. I disagree about Iceman not getting as much love. The one character I think didn't get a lot of love was Angel. And, you know, I, here's the thing. I'm still confused what happened with Angel after X-Force and the Death Seed and him being reborn and not having memories and being younger and then all of a sudden just appearing normal and fine in the Krakoan age. Fine. Sure. Resurrection. Sure. Great. Great. <laughs> Got that. Got that. But like, I why didn't like Warren ever have that plot where he was here like, I know he mentions it where he's here like, guys, have you not seen me? Like, who is that? But why wasn't there more of a weird focus on like this guy is literally identical to his teen self and completely mind wiped you know yeah, so there, there's uh there's a scene where teen angel meets that adult angel in all new x-men and adult angel has been mind wiped and he's this messianic hippie who's all like peace and love and teen angel gets really fucking freaked out like oh. that is the last thing i want to be get me out of here. And he goes back to the mansion determined to return to the past, even if the others won't go. Yeah. But Gene stops him telepathically. He minds him, minds controls like, him. Nope, you're, you're staying. Uh, but then he's the first to go join Cyclops' school after that. Yeah. Um, so I do feel like Angel got some love, but, I, but Bendis treated all of these characters with such regard and affection uh, mm. and mapping them into the current continuity. Uh, yeah. It's really brilliant. I mean, you talked about AVX, uh, but we've also had you know, decimation and, uh, and like there's, there's so much right up to Cyclops killing Professor X, which is the world that the young X-Men are now coming into. Uh, like it's, it, there's, there's so much delicious things to explore with all of that. I think it's so funny. I think delicious is just such a wonderful word. And I think it, it did really well. I feel, I feel these first six issues were and I know we're talking way past those first six issues, but I thought they were so well done. The pacing was so great with you know Emma and Cyclops not having control of their powers anymore, and Cyclops sort of having to start at square one, and then him seeing his teen version with the team there, and Emma being like, Oh my god, you saw her, you know the difference between an illusion, right? And how it profoundly affected him. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was. It was great storytelling. I wish they would have been able to ride the momentum a little bit more and, and, and have more of a direction. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, when you're publishing comics weekly, you don't always have the gift of foresight or knowing where you want to go. It's easy for us to play Monday morning quarterback like five, seven years later, however long ago these books were published. But, you know, I wish they would have been I wish they would have had a long term mapping out like we've seen in the Krokoan age. Have you ever seen a show that you're enjoying and you don't want it to end, but then it goes on too long and you're yeah. not enjoying it? Supernatural. <laughs> uh, Breaking Bad would be the like an example of the opposite. Of that. Oh, I've Five never. Five seasons, beautiful arc, ends incredibly, and you want more, but it ended at the right time. Yeah. And that's kind of how I feel about all new X Men. It's the it's the series that went on too long. They're like, we're having fun, so let's put it out a couple more seasons, and then it just got ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> So in the podcast, we talk a lot about this, but one of the big struggles then as fans trying to fit all of this in is in X-Men number eight, they go to the future, all this shit happens and they come back with their memories wiped and then let's pick up as we go. But there's some really big problems. <laughs> it's, there's some really big continuity gaps. And you uh, maybe the most egregious is 
uh, teen angel in the future passes through the black vortex, mm-hmm. loses his feathered wings and gets big giant fire cosmic wings. Uh, if, if it hooks you, up with then X-23. <laughs> yes, hooks up with female Wolverine. Uh, then teen cable cuts his fire wings off and mm-hmm. grafts on Mimic's wings. Mm-hmm. So Mimic, Mimic is the X-Men ally who sprouted his own wings. So when Angel goes back into the past, he's yeah. got Mimic's wings on his back. So yeah. everything after that is Mimic's wings. No, it, you're absolutely right. That, that happened in Extermination. And I loved Extermination. I thought it was really, really well done. I'm forgetting the name of the twins that they, they met that uh, allows Man, them. Manon and Maxime. That, that allows them to like lock away the memories of the future and then reopen them, you know, when they become adults and then they can find out how to stop, I, I believe it was Ahab. But yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I, this is such a small thing, but again, because I'm a crazy Jean Stan, I was like, but Jean's hair, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's it. She can just go back and like, did they not age at all when they were... They, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just some of those things that you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's really tough. But if we can deal with the sliding time scale, we can deal with nonsensical time. Well, travel. you know, it's so interesting. I was going to ask you about the sliding timeline because Jordan was telling us that if, you know, the Marvel Universe has been around for maybe like 12, 15 years, that means the Fantastic Four would have gone into space when Obama was becoming president. Mm hmm mind-blowing well except in another 30 years it will have been 2025 <laughs> when they went into space yeah. <laughs> or they went into space during a global pandemic <laughs> uh, yeah so i think uh I, I actually really hate it when writers try to go back and tell the 60s stories as if they were in the you know 2000s or something because like suddenly the x-men in the 60s have cell phones in the books when they were teens now and you're like that ah, no let's let's just leave that there let's not try to over explain was that year one I think year one, they, it's the first time I noticed they had like cell phones and stuff. They tried to go back and add tech. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Um, one of my favorite storylines when they come to the present is, uh, is Cyclops and his journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he is an orphan from an orphanage, lonely, morose, and Professor X is his father. Mm-hmm. So not only does he come forward and see that he's gone crazy, but that his adult self murdered Professor X. Then he goes on to meet his dad, who's actually alive and off in space. So that Cyclops series with Corsair is one of my favorite things that comes out of the... I haven't read it in such a... Well, I mean, we have to have you back again so we can talk about it officially because I haven't revisited that. Like the all new X-Men issues, I always dive back into because I thoroughly enjoyed them. But that that series, I, I never do. And I love when Cyclops meets up with the uncanny Avengers mm-hmm. and he havoc. sees havoc and they give each other a high five, but I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I'm going to hijack it again. The best scene was when Jean peeks into Wanda's head and starts crying saying we were on the verge of thriving and inheriting the earth. And she robbed us of it. So, I'm sorry. Anyways, no, making no, it about Jean. We're bringing the Scarlet witch back too. We've, uh, we've been reviewing the Scarlet witch's first appearances on the podcast. And she in the sixties, again, enormously underused, always being sexually harassed. Oh, by Mastermind Toad. By, by Magneto, by Mastermind, by Namor, by Toad. Like, it's uh, it's uncomfortable. So I'm, uh, I'm always happy to, when she joins the Avengers shortly after that. Did you ever see the Floating Hands cartoons from, like, the early 2000s where they, like, just did, like, parodies of the X-Men? 
And they did a House of M parody about Wanda, you know, and everything that happened there. And Cyclops in it is like, I miss the days when Wanda's powers were more inconvenient. And it's him like being a kid fighting with Wanda and Wanda's like, ha! And then like he gets an eyelash in his eye instead of like reality being warped. It's, you know, it was definitely a cultural sample of the era and the problematic rendering of female characters wanda in the 60s is either being harassed being saved or being protected and basically does nothing with her powers like when she's part of the brotherhood i mean the 60s team loved her because she had a heroic bend to her much as did quicksilver but yeah she's not uh she's not treated kindly in the x-men and that costume is the worst thing ever (laughs) like the toilet seat face cover and uh, so yeah, we, shout out to Demanda Martini who does who makes it look yes. so beautiful makes it look so beautiful because Demanda loves a dumb headpiece uh, Demanda and I just commented on this on uh, on Instagram today we had a back and forth about Scarlet Witch's costume it was uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot shocking this is another episode where we talk about how amazing Demanda Martini is so there you go for everyone who always engages with this community. They know how much we love Demanda Martini. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, one of the ways in which I really tried to put myself in the context of all new X-Men is I pictured like my 16 year old self coming to the present and seeing like how Same. my life has turned out and how that would fuck with his brain. And <laughs> where, then I go back in the past and I of course would want to do a bunch of things differently because that's how human life works. But then you put that into uh, the mutant universe, and obviously it's a it's a very different context with all the sci-fi. What would uh, what would sixteen year old Dayspring learn? Um, in today's world, oh man, that's that. If you would have asked me in twenty nineteen, I'd be like, ah, the party never stopped. Um, I don't know. I think there was. What would he learn? I I, I think he would be proud. I was a very bashful kid. And the fact that I've been able to make a living off of being an auctioneer and going to galas and, you know, standing in front of a room full of people and sort of burying myself and and asking for money, which is one of the hardest things to ever do. I I think he would be proud and I think I would want to instruct and give him that wisdom. But, you know, the last few years have been particularly well, this last year and a half has been so tough. And, you know, I would, I, I would always pass on the advice, like, you know, cherish your mom, cherish Victorious, who was um, Apollo's older brother, a little bit, you know, as much more as you can. I mean, I, I always have and I always did, but, you know, it's been a tough year. Sorry, I brought the energy down. We're going to oh, cut no, that no, part. No, it's okay. <laughs> I, when you ask yourself that question, yeah. like time traveling yeah. and talking to my teenage self, like, I think that's going to bring up like a huge well of like, oh, shit like thinking of what we would think about what was to come, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a lot there and I think it taps into like a very emotional space very quickly, which is one of the things, again, Bendis does beautifully with this run is he puts all of that emotion into it. Uh, yeah, I think teen Dayspring would just be like, bitch, you're still frosting your tips. <laughs> you know, um, but teen, I think teen version of me was like a closeted Mormon, like good boy. Uh, and I think looking forward, I would be very shocked and appalled at like the future out gay me. Yeah. Uh, but also like really resentful, like, oh man, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think teen, I think teen me would be horrified at my current life. Although he'd be pleased. I'm happy, of course. Of course. But no, I love the energy you put out there. I love seeing your Instagram and all your adventures. I mean, there's a lot to be proud of. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No I, have good, I have carved out a good little life here. <laughs> well, the one character we really haven't spoken that much about and his plot is, of course, Beast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fuck Beast. You know how I feel about him. I'm still unclear why he was dying in these first six issues. I don't think I quite understood that then. And I don't quite understand that now. Why, so why was he just dying randomly? I think when Bendis, I have not talked to Bendis about this, so I couldn't answer but I think when Bendis was coming up with this idea of Beast is going to bring these kids to the future. Uh, Professor X has just died. Decimations happened. Beast has been through all this shit. He hates Cyclops at this point. Uh, and by the way, I think Cyclops had Beast tortured during that like dark X-Men run on, on Utopia. Anyway, like they, they're not yeah, friends. I don't remember. Uh, but so Beast, I think Bendis needed one more plot device to make beast desperate enough to actually break the space-time continuum uh and i think the way he explained it was you know beast experimented on himself he gave himself blue fur and that experiment is now resulting in him dying like he can't do anything to fix it and of course they do fix it but uh, <laughs> but i think in issue number one of all new x-men he needs that like motivation to actually go back yeah like this is his he wants to make things right mm-hmm yeah. And, and he's obviously in his up in his trauma and like arrogance because he's he's got narcissism, you know, out the ass. But like, I think I think he's like, I need the world to be different. And so I'm going to break these scientific laws to make it happen. One thing that I thought Bendis did so well in Battle of the Atom was when they saw the future X-Men come, Gene telepathically reaches out to Beast first because they were starting to have some kind of a romance brewing there before she reached to Cyclops. And I appreciated that because I think it's just sticking with the continuity of the story you're putting out there. But then, you know, when him, Cyclops and Iceman sort of go on the road and they find the secret wars, you know, Madeline Pryor and they're in like Miami and everywhere. I was just kind of like, I'm checking out now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I did not finish. I'm forgetting what it was that all new X-Men like volume two. I did not finish that run sadly i picked up again with them at extermination but beast well, it, goes, it goes all new x-men volumes one and two and then there's x-men blue uncanny x-men there's a whole cyclops and gene gray solo series well i love the, the gene gray solo series so then much. you've got the black vortex stuff yeah. fight in the guardians of the galaxy then you have like so i mean it goes on for quite some time and the characters go through a lot so again we have to presume this all happened to these characters before they went back in time cyclops died once and was revived yeah. and was revived by uh uh christopher muse what's his name uh triage uh gene gray dies twice once yeah. the phoenix kills her and revives her and another she gets atomized by the poisons yeah and then and she's like rebuilt and then she rebuilds herself from mm-hmm. like spare biological matter so apparently gene gray is capable of assembling a human body and then giving it life and we just go, okay. Yes, sure, fine. But you know, you know one thing that from the Jean Grey series that I still don't understand is why did the Phoenix want to come resurrect Jean then? And why did it need Teen Jean out of the way? I know Teen Jean was, you know, not accepting the Phoenix force and that's fine. And then they wanted to go resurrect, you know, adult Jean. But why do you need to have past Jean out of the way? And then discovering she has power there in the white hot room and the phoenix really can't do anything so the phoenix just brings her back to life i it it always kind of confused me 
in terms of the logic behind it. But well, sure. was, it was, it's a brilliant series, but there's some strange parts. Like the the ghost of Jean Grey, the adult oh. haunts Teen Jean for a while. I could see, I would want an entire mini series of Ghost Jean and Emma. That was brilliant. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That was really fun. So uh, I think, you know, the Phoenix Force is a cosmic entity. It's hard to read its motivations. It just really wanted that host body. <laughs> uh, and so Jean Grey was the ideal. Uh, by the way, the Phoenix is is uh, in Echo now, who's a yeah. Native American woman, which I love. Uh, I'm excited to see what Jason Aaron does with her in the Avengers. So anything else on all new X-Men that you've wanted to comment on? So many things that I could <laughs> I, uh, I think, you know, as a storyteller, we, uh, uh, okay, so the next episode of Grey Malkin that we have coming out is a three hour long trial of Charles Xavier. All so right. You, you know, we love our three hour episodes here. Well, uh, that's a pretty long time for my podcast, but we, uh, we so six other podcast hosts, including Justin from Ex-Wife, uh, we sit down and we, we go over all of the sins of Charles Xavier and we talk about them in depth and just like how much of an asshole is he basically. And at the end of that, plus all the prep work I did, I'm like, okay, now I know who Professor X is. Like, now I have an understanding. When you consider someone like Bendis with this cast of characters who are, you know, decades worth of history and they all take that much thought, uh, how do their powers work together? Where do their histories fit? And you add time travel into it. It's a really brilliant series. I'm actually really impressed having gone back to reread that. I think it's uh, I think it's amazing. I think it doesn't get the credit it deserves for being so well done. And and Bendis was writing Uncanny X-Men and Guardians at the time this was starting off. I don't know how that works for someone's schedule. I mean, I can't even push out one book <laughs> over a course of like five years. So, you know, I hope he has it. I think he has a great writing ethic. I think that's what people have always said. He has a good work ethic, excuse me. Um, but I, I agree with you. And now I just remembered the, his biggest sin was that he had married Mystique. <laughs> yeah, we talk about that a little bit. <laughs> Charles, no. Charles Xavier is complicated. So, so what's the, I don't want to spoil your episode, but what's the final verdict on Charles Xavier? Uh, we, we come to the conclusion that he's mostly an asshole, yeah. but not, not egregiously. So I'd, I'd give him a, a score of around 70% on the asshole scale, okay. uh, but still pretty, pretty, uh, pretty unethical in a lot of ways. Uh, he's got a complicated history. I it was fun that. though. It was fun to talk about. Uh, we'll probably do similar episodes about the beast and Magneto in the future, like having, uh, having, putting them on trial. Let, let's see, let's see what we come up with. We did that uh, with beast. We've done that with Madeline Pryor, and we're also going to be doing that with Namor in, in a couple of weeks. It's fun to do that deep dive into the characters and really get to know them and just absorb them and kind of see the forest for the trees because you know, I think there is interpretation for these characters. How do you, as a reader, internalize their story? Yeah. But also, like, facts are facts. And Xavier definitely has so many sins. And, you know, in Astonishing X-Men, when, <laughs> when they're like, oh, you locked up this sentient being, and his excuse was, my teams needed to be trained. Fuck you, Xavier. Like, I don't know. they there's not much wiggle room there in, in terms of morality, you know what I mean? But you, again, 
making it all about Gene. I'm sorry. I wasn't prepared to come today talking about Gene, but you know, there is that scene in, in Astonishing X-Men where he's holding Danger's head and Danger's like, your X-Men have no idea the kind of person you really are. And Xavier goes, I'd like to think Gene knew, knew and understood. And then throws her head, <laughs> you know, over his shoulder. So no, it is. It's really, it's really, uh, it's really fun. Um, and if you love a fictional universe enough to like listen to a podcast for three hours about one character, like I love it. I love that we get to go to these places with these characters that are so beloved to us. Like we find something in them to latch onto. They matter to us. Uh, so I, I love that there's this universe of people relating to these characters that I love in the way that I love them. It's, uh, it's, and I'm really looking forward to your name or trial. That sounds amazing. So Chad, you are starting from the beginning from the 60s comics. Are you just going to go all the way through the 70s, the 80s, and then the 90s, and then the 2000s? Are you, so my, what's the long-term my, plan here? My goal is to wrap it up when the original run of X-Men wrapped up, okay. which is uh, 66 issues. So 66 wow. episodes is plenty of time. Um, uh, we're, we're just we're just recording the first appearances of Juggernaut right now, uh, after which we'll do the first four issues of the Sentinels after that. So, I mean, these are classic, incredible characters. It's really fun to go back to their beginnings. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't wait to see what you all do next. Like, you just have, I mean, I just love all of your energy and everything you put out there. Thank you, thank you, Dayspring, and back at you. You've, uh, you've created this, like, wonderful place where nerds and professionals and everyone can kind of meet in the middle uh, and you have so much enthusiasm in the way you do things thank you I, I really really enjoy your work as well and thanks for your enthusiasm about Great Malkin Lane we're like the little engine that could right now so it's really fun to have you uh, taking an interest so where can folks at home connect with you where can they listen to Great Malkin Lane yeah, Gray Malkin Lane, G-R-A-Y. Gray Malkin Lane is uh, on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor, and a lot of the places you'll find just your regular podcasts. Uh, me, uh, you can find me most easily on Twitter under Gray Malkin P, P for podcast, or on Instagram just under Gray Malkin Podcast. Uh, and I'm pretty interactive. If you want to chat, shoot me a message sometime. All right, folks. And as always, I'm the Uncanny Dayspring, signing off.